Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has three years of law enforcement analysis experience. She spent time with the Indianapolis Metro Police Department and the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. She holds a master's degree majoring in criminal justice. Here to talk about mental health, including PTSD. Please welcome Allison Davis. Allison, how are we doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Jason? I am doing excellent. So we got a lot to go over today. Before I ask you a first question, just want to remind our listeners, we will be doing a shit you here in the office call-in segment. So if you have a crazy story that you heard in the office, get your calls in now. So, all right, Allison, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? I was in graduate school. And at the time, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And then I took a crime analysis class. And around the same time, IMPD had announced that they were going to start hiring Intel analysts. And so I started in that process. Unfortunately, wasn't selected first round, but that piqued my interest to keep working for that. All right. So then did you get in the second time around then? I did get in the second time. In between there, I worked for a prosecutor's office. Okay, so what did you all do for the prosecutor's office? I started as an intern. I worked about 20 hours a week, and then I was promoted to a legal assistant, and then I was promoted again to a paralegal for drug and gun cases. Okay, so were, were you assigned that internship from the school, or did you had you reached out to the prosecutor's office for an internship? I had reached out to the prosecutor's office. A friend I had had also interned there before, so it was a great segue for him to introduce myself to the hiring manager. Okay, so then what did you all do as an intern and legal assistant? As a intern, I did all the the fun jobs of really kind of just digitizing most of their caseloads. Mm-hmm. I would kind of set up their schedules, get them case files that they would need for the next day, very kind of simpler things. And then that also kind of gave me a really good way to read into police reports, evidence, listen to like dispositions. And then once I promoted to a legal assistant, it was more getting their calendars set. I would file some type of documents, so like probable cause affidavit warrants, etc. And then as I moved up to be a paralegal, I did a lot of, I would answer like discovery. So when a defense is ready for discovery, I would prepare that, redact things, provide all the information we had. And then if a case was going to trial, I would get all of that evidence ready, get witnesses, subpoenas, all the things that a prosecutor could possibly need that I was able to take care of. Hmm. Now, did you have to get any extra training or certifications to be a paralegal? There is a certification you can get as a paralegal, but it is not required, at least in the state of Indiana. Okay. All right. So, you know, one of the questions I like to ask my guest is how this internship or how this job that you had before becoming an analyst influenced you becoming an analyst, but it goes without saying that being able to read the police reports and understand the prosecution side of things certainly would have helped you in your career as an analyst. It was super helpful. And I feel like I would almost, if I could like recommend that to people, because it helps you learn so much about what the prosecution side looks like Mm -hmm. when you're working on a case. And when you move into the police side of this is what they're looking for, what they're going to ask. When I worked there as a paralegal or et cetera, I remember I just wanted to like ask all these questions of people's background or like who else are they working with, especially if it was like a dealing case. And my prosecutor used to always tell us to like focus on what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I love digging in then. Yeah. So then you worked for that prosecutor's office for almost two years, right? Yes, I did. As you said, you went to the second round of the hiring there at Indianapolis for PD. What do you think the differences were the first and second time uh, that helped you get through? 
I know like the first time as they were setting up their analysis and their intel unit, I think they had a really good idea of who they initially were going to start as their analysts when they opened it up. There was a there was an intern from the ATF that had worked previously with this unit that they really liked. So I think the first round was they really kind of had an idea of exactly what they were looking for and also had an idea of who they were already looking at mm. to kind of get that program standing up. And then the second time, a lot of it was just perseverance and really kind of honing in on the theories, the cycle, kind of the nitty gritty when I didn't have experience with it before. Okay. How many were they hiring the first time and then the the second time? The first time they were hiring two and the second time they also hired two. Okay. All right. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. Then panel interview, is that the way it went? Yes, and it was during COVID, of course, so everything was by phone, so you really had to kind of like listen to figure out who was actually talking to you. Oh, man, so it wasn't (laughs) even a video call, it was just over the phone, like a conference call. Yeah, and it almost kind of felt like, jokingly, kind of felt like speed dating, because it was just like (laughs) rapid fire. They're like, you have this long, and you have this many questions, go, and it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, man, so how many were on the panel? I would say there were five or six. There were quite a few. Wow. (laughs) That's, that is a lot. I think that's a lot, even with just having a normal meeting with people where you're trying to collaborate with a bunch of people. That is really hard once you get up to five, six. It just, it's just too hard to give equal time to everybody. Yes, which I which is why I think it was kind of a speed round because they knew there were multiple people there that had questions. And I think at that point there were many people kind of with their hands in the fire of what they were looking for in an analyst. Whereas now it's I think it's only two people that sit in on their interviews. So, well, they at least got to know the fact that you can articulate on the phone. If anything, this is very true. Yes. Right. They know your phone skills are good, right? Yes. And so, so if the interview is by phone, was the actual starting the job remote as well? It was not. I went into the office. Okay. All right. That's, that's, it's kind of interesting that they did it that way, I would think, but I was there like two weeks and then kind of the shutdowns kind of started. Okay. So, all right. And then we moved to home. (laughs) All right. And then how long were you home? I would say about six months. The oh, wow. Unit, the unit I was working for at the time, they were just a very fast pace. You definitely had to be in the office to keep up with them. Mm-hmm. So it really showed how important it was to have the analysts co-mingle with the officers and the agents we were working with. I got you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's six months. That's, that's a long time, especially when you're first starting. That's, yes. That's a lot to ask in the fast pace and... Especially since the officers and detectives that you're working with, they're not working remotely, right? So when you're at meetings, it's just you maybe calling in and everybody else is sitting in a conference room, right? Yes. And especially like not knowing who anyone is. Yeah. How do you kind of, you know, start those conversations or working with someone? It was just some some big hurdles in the start. Yeah, that's a, that's a big difference because I, I started working from home in 2018 before the pandemic. And a lot of times in the beginning, it was me on the conference call with everybody sitting in a conference room. And it's really hard to interject without seeming like you're being rude. Yes. Right. It was it's really, really difficult. I struggled with that. And that's even though I knew the team that I was working with. I had worked with that team for seven years face to face before I transferred into work working remotely. So to me, you have an extra level of difficulty in the fact that not only are you a new analyst, then you don't even know the folks that you're working with. Yes. Daunting. Okay. So then since you're working remotely, six months at home, they obviously are giving you some kind of laptop with connection, VPN or something like that, where you're accessing all the databases and data from your house? Yes. So they actually allowed us to bring one of our 
monitors that we had also home because it is extremely difficult to impossible to do the work we do from just a laptop. Oh, okay. I see. So more more power in the desktop. I got you. Yeah. No, that's that's good. It's so funny. I, like when I think back about it, because there were so many police departments that would never have allowed remote access into their system before the pandemic mm-hmm. right i mean they were no there's no way we're dealing with vpn security and we're you know i'm gonna worry about somebody hacking our system and all this other stuff but i guess when you don't have a better choice you choose that route but it now it kind of opens us up now that we've done that went that route there's no re- real reason not to do it from time to time yes it's helpful it's a good it's kind of a good perk now as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and it goes both ways because I've I've talked to some analysts who say, yeah, it's it's interesting because sometimes a supervisor will ask you to do something after hours mm-hmm. and then turn around and give you a, a little bit of the side eye if you're going to ask to work remotely on a Friday type thing. So it's kind of odd that that happens. That would be an awkward situation to be in. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So as you're setting yourself up then and getting your first six months, you're out of the office and you come back in the office and you mentioned that it's fast paced, like what types of tasks are you doing? What's expected of you? My first unit that I worked for was a crime gun intelligence center. So as Niven leads would be produced from the crime lab, we would have those tasks to us. At the time, there were four analysts and a supervisor. So we would be in a rotation and then the case agents would also be in a rotation, which was helpful to get to know who I was working with because I had to talk to them about certain cases that I was on them mm-hmm. with. So I would do a lot of those tasks. So kind of looking at the police reports, determining if there's a suspect finding social media, listening to jail calls. I listen to jail calls a lot in that <laughs> job in general. People would be like, Allison's like the jail call queen. She's always listening to jail calls. I just I just think it's a great resource. So I tap into it all the time. Oh. So, but other than that, that was kind of what we did. We would do a lot of those reports. And then if they were out in the field, we would be on the radio, almost kind of like a dispatch. They would call a plate out and we would immediately run the plate and then call out who it's registered to. At the time, you had to have a permit to carry in Indiana. We would let them know if they were eligible for that, had that, or if they weren't allowed to have a gun at all. So Mm. it was a lot of fast pace, especially they're driving, they call this plate out, like you have to give it to them in like five to 10 seconds, or if they make a traffic stop, or they're doing a search warrant and find some identification, it's running that person to give them some really good info to steer their investigation. Man, I would be so bad at that. Considering it takes a little while. <laughs> considering I am a podcaster and I do well listening to people's conversations, but if you ask me to write down a phone number and I have to do it in five seconds, I'm I'm failing over 50% of the time. It's right? hard. There's, there's no way that I'm getting that number. People and just like rattle off the number and I might get three, four numbers in and then I lose the last six. <laughs> like it's, it would be really hard for me to do that. I feel like there was always a safety net of there's another analyst around you that's also listening and you're like, yeah. all right, I got the first four digits. Do you remember what the last two were? Uh, yeah. And especially when we were learning, they gave a lot of grace of like, they're okay repeating it. Obviously, I'm sure they're not thrilled, yeah. but they didn't like belittle you because I think at one point, like they also couldn't remember all the things <laughs> at once. But and I, I honestly think the weirdest thing was if we had our radios turned up too high and hearing myself talk on someone's radio, I would like pause because I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> hearing yourself is weird well at least you didn't i hope you didn't get to the point where you were talking to yourself right i didn't some days i probably should have maybe but yeah it's that's always that's just the weirdest part for me is hearing myself yeah so that is nerve-wracking and <laughs> and very intense right because they're yes. they're in a situation and be, calling on you to give them as much information as possible. And so not only are you trying to get the initial information down so you can ask the right questions of the data, but then you have to quickly synthesize 
all the data, summarize the data, and then get it back to them in some manageable format. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and they were. I would almost categorize them as like a violent crimes unit because they're dealing with people that we know have firearms. That's how mm-hmm. we identified these people. And so it's there's also this heightened element of their safety at the same time of, you know, if someone has a prior criminal reckless, you know, or, or shooting, we definitely want to let them know so they're aware. Or like if they have history of resisting, there's a few key things where you're like, oh, I absolutely need to let them know about this. Yes. Yes. And then so how was the data there when you're doing all this? Because there's certain situations where sometimes the data isn't as clean as it should be. And if you're high pace there, you don't necessarily have time to look at three different places for data. Yeah, there's definitely a component missing in that kind of in that process we were doing of the validity or the reliability of some of this information. Luckily, a lot of the information we were grabbing was from like the BMV or Indiana's criminal history site, Mm -hmm. where most of the time that data is actually pretty easy to read. Mm -hmm. If there's an error, it might have been like an entry error on someone from the court system. But for the most part in that aspect, it wasn't too bad. And, you know, kind of calling out that stuff for the officers. But Going back to the Nibin reports and trying to get that data, there would be some extremely dirty data. Or I think one of my biggest pet peeves, and I'm sure many analysts deal with this, is an officer makes a report and says there were four people there, but they only list two people in the report. So then you're you're missing that data and you're like, well, who are these two people? Like it would be really helpful, especially with some of those Nibin leads, you have to really start creating social network analysis. And that's where the the cleaning of the data really had to come in because names are spelled wrong or date of births are a year off. And so you really kind of have to start using those multiple sources to confirm someone's identity or date of birth. Yeah. Hmm. So then was there a step after this instance? Because I can imagine that obviously at this particular time, it's intense, right? Where they're just about to either do a search and seizure or come in contact with the suspects and so that is obviously intense but it's not like that 24 7 so there would be some downtime so after the fact you know you go back and clean up your notes clean up the reports and trying to to shore up some of those loose ends yes yeah yeah it's definitely it's an interesting process especially in comparison to what i'm you know what i do now so it's a it's a different kind of intel analyst job because i feel like you wear more hats in that role with a crime gun intelligence center mm-hmm. than with the sheriff's department with like what i'm doing now there's definitely some very different roles My name is Mindy, and I am a writer for Analyst Talk with Jason Elder, as well as a current crime analyst. My PSA for our listeners is don't compare your origin stories to others. I used to be super insecure when asked, why do you want to be an analyst or in law enforcement? And I always felt like I had imposter syndrome because I didn't have a good reason. I don't have any family members in law enforcement. I've never been involved in a crime, knock on wood. And I just felt like I had no good reason for being here besides just being interested in the industry. Six years later, I still don't feel like I have a good answer, but I love my job and I'm pretty good at it. Passion or your calling isn't something that just hits you one day. It is something that's built and maintained over time, day by day, every day. If you're on the fence whether you're cut out for this field, just go for it. If you currently have no reason, make a reason. Make your own origin story. I believe in you. Hey, this is Mary Craig. My public service announcement for the listeners is irregardless is not a word. It may have been recognized by Webster's Dictionary in 2020, but it is still not a word. It's regardless. Back to the listening to the jail calls, and yes. I don't. I'm sure I, when you said that, I was thinking, has anybody 
on this show talked about listening to jail calls. And I can't remember if there is or not, but certainly, as you mentioned, that can be a very good resource. So do you have any either stories or certain things that you gleaned from using this data? Using jail data to me is amazing because I a lot of the times there's a lingo that comes with violent crime or gun crimes when someone says, I have a heat or I have a stick. So you can take the knowledge from the jail calls and compare that to what you're seeing on social media. So that's always kind of a perk. I'm trying to think of a story from a jail call. I feel like jail calls can be all over the place where you'll be like, did I... Did I really just hear that? I don't have one coming to mind right now. Yeah. Way back, I worked with some guys in the Washington, Baltimore, Haida, who didn't deal with jail calls, but dealt with jail communication. So letters back and forth. And they would tell me interesting stories and in that there would be, they would talk in code and sometimes they would put the letter that has the coded information in it and the key for the code in the same envelope. <laughs> so all they had to do was look at the key and then substitute like the the key in the in the letter and they were able to identify what's what was going on. <laughs> That's since I remember working a case in Indy that kind of something similar there was someone that kept stealing from the same store and when they finally got the person in the backpack was a list of all the things that they were there to steal. <laughs> and I was like, why did you, why are you doing this? <laughs> well, he, can't, he or she couldn't remember them all. That's right. a lot. That's a lot. I just got done telling you, I can't remember four digits. So if there's more than like six items on there, my wife knows that she's texting me the list because she's not, she knows I won't remember more than four. <laughs> so. All right. This brings us to your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works. And for you, Allison, it's during this time, 2020, working in this center and you come across a gun case that you start working on. Yes. One of the gun cases I was assigned, we had our major at the time, major had at the time, there was an email he had got about an uptick in crime in a specific part of the city. And when the evidence technicians were recovering gun casings, the shell casings, they were all 10 millimeters. And at this time, 10 millimeter wasn't extremely common in what we were seeing when we're processing. You have a lot of those nine millimeters, the 40s, the 45s, but it was, at this time, it was really rare to see 10. And it seemed like in one weekend, there were 15 to 20 casings of a 10 millimeter that were picked up. Wow. So, at the, and of course, with COVID, everything's backed up. And so by the time we get these Nibin leads, we had actually identified who we thought was shooting these casings. And we actually, when looking at the reports, we actually knew where the gun was. But at the time, there wasn't enough probable cause for an officer to write a search warrant on the home to obtain the gun. So as we're working through this, we just keep getting more and more Nibin leads and we're connecting I think at one point we were up to 40 Nibin leads, which typically there's a Nibin, for a Nibin lead, there's at least two reports. Mm -hmm. So it was involved in many shootings. So this is just one gun, right? Yes, this is okay. one gun, one suspect. We later figure out that the suspect sister's boyfriend also had access to this firearm. And both of them were getting in shootings with various people throughout the city and all over the city, not just specifically an east side or a north side. It was throughout the city. Okay. So part of Indianapolis Gun Crime Intelligence Center is they work with federal agents. We literally would sit right next to an ATF agent. So as these Nibin leads kept coming through, we realized this was a much larger case than our typical two Nibin leads, three Nibin leads, like a few cases connected where we're talking 20 cases that are connected at this point. So I started working with one of the ATF agents and one of the detectives we had, and we eventually were able to use social media. The suspect we were specifically interested in had went live on Facebook, and we were able to determine where he was based on the surroundings we were seeing in that video. So the officers take off. They're able to apprehend him walking down the street. The gun is on him. So we, we recover that gun. Very exciting. He ended up 
going, his charges were a direct indictment with the federal government. But what makes this story even more exciting is around this time, Operation Legend was occurring through various cities. But during COVID, as most of us are aware, there was a large uptick in violent crime. So the government decides we're going to flood these areas with even more federal agents than they typically would have. Let's combat some of the crime. Indianapolis did an amazing job with Operation Legend. We got a lot of guns, a lot of federal candidates, and it, overall it was just really successful for the city. Mm. I end up kind of explaining the whole case, and at the time, I full disclosure, I didn't realize who I was talking to, but I knew there was someone from the government coming and we were going to give a speech about what the center does, and then use this as a success story. So I go through this whole case, and I show my social network analysis and all these different things. And when I'm done, I remember thinking, you know, why is everyone treating this guy like he's a really, like, special person? The Secret Service is there. At this point, I'm just not putting two two together. But it ends up being Attorney General, like, William Barr, who I'm talking to. And had absolutely no clue. <laughs> I don't... He, like, compliments the case. And I was, you know, really excited just to share it with someone. Because... There were so many hours that went into that. And so we're like lining up to take photos and it finally like clicked. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just talked to like the, the attorney general of the United States. So that ended up being a really big kind of career defining thing to have a picture with him and be able to talk about a case I spent hours on that was super successful. Yeah, I don't think I can name all the attorney generals and administrations like unless usually the only ones you know is if they did something wrong or something right. there's right controversy but if there's no controversy you never know who really know who they are but yeah uh, i find it fascinating they didn't tell you what <laughs> what well, was going on they d- they told me they're like oh like william barr and i was like okay cool just, you know, any other day. And then I'm like sitting there with the ATF agent. And I was like, I still don't understand. And she's like, Allison, he's like an attorney general. I was like, okay. Like I had worked with prosecutors. So I'd like, I work with people like higher up in government for the state. I just wasn't understanding. It was the United States attorney general, <laughs> not the state one. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So, well, Hey, you made an impression, even though you didn't know who you were talking to. And at the end of the day, it should matter, yes. right? Whether you're yeah. talking with a officer or you're talking to the president of the United States, you, you know, the presentation should be basically the same. You're trying to get he or she to understand what the case was about. Yes. Yes. It was a great experience. I'm and still kind of glad that I probably didn't know ahead of time because I probably would have been a little yeah. more nervous and in my head about it. Yeah, ignorance is bliss sometimes, right? Yes, absolutely, especially that. <laughs> All right, question back to when the arrested the suspect, mm-hmm. and you said he went live on Facebook. So what was the probable cause? What, what crossed that barrier to like, to like, oh, we have enough probable cause now to arrest him. So when he was walking down the street, they could see a firearm on his person. Mm-hmm. And I believe what had happened is they had jaywalked. And they also knew at the time that he was ineligible from having a firearm. Oh, because he was under probation or parole or whatever it is. Another he violation. just had, he had a, his criminal history was already pretty lengthy. Okay. Which is why he wasn't able to have that firearm. But he had jaywalked across the street and they stopped them for doing that man that is that's a lot to be in 20 different shootings one gun that's a lot is the case still in courts or is it adjudicated that i am not sure of shortly after i left indianapolis he was out on federal monitoring Mm -hmm. uh, but i i don't know i didn't follow up when i left yeah and it's probably going to depend on whether he took a plea or not. Yes. Right. But as you mentioned, if there are more federal cases now because of Operation Legend, then you're going to have more cases in the courts and things are going to take longer to get through. So it's possible that it's still being in the process. And I think Operation Legend even kind of had the backlash of now they have so many cases running through the federal court that they have to be a little more choosy on what they're taking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
because most of the time when you talk about federal time, it's there's no parole. Correct. Right. There is when you get five years, you're getting five years federal time. And it's not this. I'll give you five and then out in six months for good behavior. Usually. Right. Mm-hmm. It's that's usually the case. Yes. So, hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. All right. Anything else you think of when you maybe things you walked out of or things you would have done differently had had the same scenario popped up? Anything that you got out of the case? I don't think so. I was pretty happy with how that case went. It was something we were always kind of watching and monitoring. Mm-hmm. And really, it was kind of a, a great job of numerous districts kind of coming together when another 10 millimeter case was picked up. They would typically notify us. We would know before the next day or the next morning, they would text one of us to let us know. So it was overall, I was really happy with how it went. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Well, you mentioned your transition to Hamilton County Sheriff's Office. So let's get into that in that. What made you decide to go to Hamilton County Sheriff's Office? I mainly wanted a change of pace. Unfortunately, with Indianapolis having so much violent crime, it that was most of what I was seeing all the time. So I wanted to change it up and go somewhere it would be a little slower. Because much like we talk about these cycles and these questions, when things are moving so fast, you don't always have the opportunity to actually go through that cycle or sit down and really think about those questions or those intelligence gaps. So I wanted to take a step back. I knew I really liked what I was doing there. But I wanted to be able to kind of expand the other skills that an Intel analyst should have. All right. So then I guess what are you getting into now? What what types of cases are you working or tasks that you're doing? So I work narcotics cases mm-hmm. predominantly. And then we have six, five districts in total. So I have two of those districts I have. And then on top of that, I also keep track of our gangs that go through our our jurisdiction. And we have one specific gang that's specific to our jurisdiction. So I actively monitor them. You mentioned that it's it's slower pace, more methodical, dealing with solving problems what are just some things you're able to accomplish or work on since you've been there absolutely so a great example is this morning i had one of our lieutenants which lieutenants or who run our district came in and said this is a kind of a typical request i get of hey our council is saying that they feel like we've seen an uptick in crime can you give me something that proves or disproves that what areas do we have, you know, some hot spots and what do you think we can do about that? We try to really instill the Sarah model in our officers to make them a little more self-reliant, I guess, where they can kind of think through this. So we talk with them a lot and try to get them to realize this and kind of the pros of using this model. So other kind types of requests I would get are specifically if a officer makes a traffic stop. For example, one of my officers made one a few weeks ago and noticed a a certain tattoo on the individual's hand, which we knew to be involved with a gang. So he sent that individual's information to me and what do we know on this guy? So I can do more work up on that. And then I also specifically where the gang is, I watch for any type of threats who they're not getting along with, what they're talking about in jail, et cetera, to try to help them mitigate any threats that could be in the future. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's not a surprise to me that you use the Sarah model being so close to Cincinnati with John Eck and all, right? Right. <laughs> That's probably a requirement. <laughs> <laughs> So as you're going through all of these, because this isn't necessarily a center, right? This is you're not in a real time crime center situation. So that, that certainly takes the intensity off of here. This is more case support as opposed to working for a center and working all hours of the day and dealing with these really intense situations that you were in Indianapolis. Correct. We are an intelligence unit. We have three analysts, a captain, a supervisor, and then we also have an investigator. So we try to just make sure information is flowing to our office, out of our office, so that we really have a great understanding of what's going on in our jurisdiction. Yeah. Now, do you get to listen to jail calls there at Hamilton County Sheriff's Office? I did that all morning this morning, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) man yes Yes. plenty of jail calls (laughs) 
Yeah, certainly keep you busy, right? And even if I don't know, if, are people doing handwritten letters anymore? I mean, I don't know if you get those uh, access to those. I don't believe our jail will accept handwritten letters anymore. I think due to possibility of narcotics on them. Mm-hmm. But our inmates have access to tablets where they can send almost kind of like a text to a person. So we have access to that as well. I can I can read their text. Yeah. Hopefully they'll be nice enough to give you the key if there's talking in secret. Yes. Maybe that'll be the text before it gives them the codes. <laughs> so I do want to transition now to a more serious topic, and that is dealing with mental health and analysis. You have a, a unique perspective. So I don't really have a question. I'm just going to give you the floor and then you can take it to whatever direction you want to take it. Okay. Yeah, this topic, I think before starting this job, I probably would have never thought about this, but it's a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart now. So when I was at IMPD, one of the great things we got to do is it was pretty normal routine. If the unit was going to work on a case out to do surveillance or a search warrant, if it wasn't your case, you could go out with them. Change of scenery, wouldn't have to be in the office, kind of see what they're doing out there to better understand what your analysis helps with or maybe kind of add in something else you'd like to think about when you're doing your analysis. We were out one morning and we had just heard over the radio that the SWAT truck had left and I was riding with one of our agents and we, there was one other agent in another car, just a block over. We were watching a house and the agent in the other car had two men approach him and essentially they tried carjacking him. He was an undercover. We were both in undercover cars and they tried carjacking him and ended up firing shots. And which in turn kind of created this whole domino effect of it's just I, the agent and this other agent out here. I'm obviously unarmed. I can't do anything. So we take off towards that other agent. You know, where did these guys go? Did he get hit? Is he okay? And it, it kind of put the agent I was riding with in a really tough position because without me, he would have taken off after the suspect, but the suspect didn't go far. And so does he leave me in the car by myself unarmed? You know, what What does that do? So they, the agent I was with ended up taking off after the suspect. But that just kind of started this possibility of, in my mind, of like the dangers that are out there. So all in all, the suspect was taken into custody, charged federally. Was absolutely not supposed to have a gun at all and was also using some serious drugs at the time. Was anybody hit? No one was hit. Just, no one was hit. Now, did you, are, I'm trying to visualize this in, in my mind as you're telling the story. Are you able to see the carjacking as it's going on or you guys are in communication and they, you hear about it and then you're rushing in? Correct. So we heard about it. We were only a block away, but the street we were on had quite a few large trees. So most mm-hmm. of the time, just the trunks were in the way. Okay. Uh, so he had came out on the radio and like yelling shots fired. So we rushed that way. But yeah, no one was hit, which thankfully no one was hit. And then after that, you know, kind of everyone shows up. Um, ATF shows up and kind of takes over the scene of that. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I remember going on ride alongs and the guy says, if anything happens to me, hit this red button. I guess that would have called somebody at back at the district. And you that's know. what's so helpful in the in the. The uniform vehicles, they have those buttons, but in an undercover vehicle, it's just a standard passenger car that either you or I would drive on a daily basis. So we didn't have those things, an error on my part. I didn't take my radio with me. We had a few very old like vests in the back that absolutely heavy. Typically I would grab one of those that morning. I didn't because I was like, this is going to be fast. This is going to be quick. We'll be in and out. We'll be back in no time. Um, Obviously, the morning had other plans. So that was it it was just weird to be in that environment. We hear about it all the time, right, of Mm -hmm. these officer involved shootings or someone shooting at the police. And so it was just weird to actually be in that. And then I also felt guilty that the agent I was riding with kind of had to make a decision of do I leave her here unarmed or do I take off after the suspect? It was a very unique role. Many things going through the mind at that moment, right? 
because I've even heard scenarios with ride alongs that they said, like, hey, if they have to leave you, they might. And I'm thinking, well, they would not have just left you on the side of the road there where a shooting just happened. Um, He left his door open. His driver's door was open. Cars on. I'm like, if this dude jumps the fence and like hops in this car, what do I do? Do I hop out? Am I going with him? It's just absolute terrible situation. I do want to get to the impact on you, but to shore up this, in terms of the policy with Indianapolis, did anything change because of this incident? I wouldn't say anything policy-wise. We had never mm-hmm. had, a, at the time, we didn't have a policy. But it was for sure my the boss I had at the time just saying, like, when you leave, you absolutely have to take these things with you. If you don't have one of these things with you, you're not leaving. I see. I see. So this incident had a big impact on you in the days after. Yes. I essentially started thinking about, as I said, I worked for a gun unit. So most of the reports I was reading was all these people getting shot at and all these different things where if I like walked outside, I, you know, I wanted to make sure I could see my surroundings. I wouldn't sit in the car too long because people can get carjacked and shot that way. So my mind was just thinking of all the different ways someone could shoot a gun around me. It made me extremely jumpy, any loud noises. It was just rough for a little while of kind of maintaining a normal life. I wasn't really able to do for quite a few months after that. So you eventually get diagnosed with PTSD. How how were you diagnosed? So IMPD has a great program for their officers of if they're experiencing anything mental health wise, they actually have some sworn members that have went to school to be able to help with mental health challenges of officers. So at the time, the captain I had recommended that I go talk to one of them. And I actually did. And it was, they were so helpful. And I remember thinking, and even now, sometimes I kind of have to remember this of even though like analysts aren't out in the field, like a sworn officer would be or a detective, we are still taking in so much negative information that is happening to other people where we can internalize that these situations are reality and these are happening to people. They could happen to me. So I ended up talking to their mental health unit and then went back to a psychiatrist that they recommended me to, which is where I got that diagnosis. And I would say for about six to eight months, the big thing was loud noises Mm -hmm. was the hardest thing. My body would just take it as, you know, it was a shots fired and kind of go into that fight, flight, or freeze mode. As you're working through all this, are you still working for the police department or did you? Okay. Yes, I was still working. And for the most part, I didn't really share what I was going through with many people. Even the agent that I had rode with that this happened with, he and I didn't even talk. And it really put a lot of strain on that relationship, which in turn affected other relationships. Oh, okay. That's 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 too bad. Talking these through, you're getting help, which is obviously the right thing to do. What do you feel was the breakthrough? Was it just a matter of time or was there a point in time when when you felt that, OK, it's it's OK, I'm comfortable you know, just walking around or being in my car, just sitting here in the parking lot? I think time time helped quite a bit. I mm-hmm. think it was also not feeling as shameful. There was so much shame that I associated with being a civilian, just reading reports that I should have been stronger or this shouldn't affect me. The one incident, of course, was kind of a big catalyst to all of this, but I just felt a lot of shame that I should be better and stronger, that this stuff shouldn't affect me if I'm working for a police department. Time definitely helped kind of thinking through that, But the other thing was sharing with people around me that, you know, if you make a loud noise, like it actually like really freaks me out. If we can try to just avoid doing that for a little while, just kind of while I worked on calming my nervous system when I would hear something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Now, is that still the case or loud noises don't impact you anymore? Loud noises still impact me, unfortunately, but it's not as it's not as bad where if there's a super loud noise, it'll make me jump, but I can definitely kind of self-soothe a lot faster than I used to be able to, or not at all for the case a while ago. I couldn't self-soothe. It would just startle me and kind of rattle me for the rest of the day. Analysts listening to this and certainly doing similar work, 
certainly not dealing with the similar situation that you did, but what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think the biggest advice is just to listen to your body, but also know that it's okay that you're taking in all this negative information and it's natural for your brain to think through these things is it's trying to, your brain's, your brain wants to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's hanging on to these cues because your brain thinks it's going to protect you in the long run. But when it starts really kind of getting in the way of your everyday life, or you just feel like you have to look over your shoulder all the time, or you're doing things where, you know, you can't just sit in your vehicle and finish the song you want to listen to. Like, it's okay to ask for help as a civilian, because I really, you know, as a human, we weren't meant to look at negative stuff like we do so many times a day. So do you think it would have been better if you took a break from the everyday, you talked about the intensity of the center, because You've gone through this, you have PTSD, but you're still continuing to read all this negativity. Do you think you would have healed faster, maybe, if you took a break from reading all that negativity? I think it would have helped, yes. Um, mm-hmm. I think at the time, I'm not sure that there would have been that the leadership I directly had would have understood where I was coming from. I don't think that awareness was there yet. Yeah. But I, yeah, I definitely think I'm, I, I can feel even just like now where I'm at, that there's a completely different kind of, almost kind of like energy of I'm not scared to like walk outside where I am, you know, now mm-hmm. because I'm, we're not, we don't have crime in the, in our jurisdiction. Cincinnati has quite a bit, but with being the sheriff's department, we don't oversee the city. So there's definitely slowing down and not seeing all those violent things has helped. But yeah. I think at the same time, a big, a big catalyst at that time would have been like a debrief session. So many times when a department or a unit goes through something like an officer involved shooting or some type of large operation there's typically a debrief at the end you go back through everything that happened what could have been better what do we still need to talk about this should have been debriefed and i think those that were involved should have had a lot more conversation than just acting like nothing happened wow so i think it's a communication piece Hmm. wow because certainly to talk through it to if anything just to make sure that everybody's okay Right. I mean, it was a bad situation and certainly there's some things that could have been done to make it better. But at the same time, the to act like nothing happened is it doesn't seem like that was the best course of action. Correct. So you mentioned the loud noises gave you a response. Have you felt anything from just doing maybe normal analytical work? Has that triggered anything just like reading reports or or seeing certain stuff around the police department or anything like that? I think every once in a while, there might be a report that just kind of rattles me a little bit, but it's a lot easier now just to kind of take in the information and I say in one ear and out the other, but kind of in and out, it doesn't affect me like it used to. Hmm. You've mentioned it before. It's just the, the, the shame of it all, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, that, that's pressure you're putting on yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's something that that weight and that could be you almost be your own worst enemy in a way because you're dealing with all this and you're thinking about, oh, if I only would have done X, Y and Z, it would have been better. And right. And then that can be tough that that shame, because I can think of some of the situations that I had in my life where I had that shame. And it's certainly on a much lower scale than what we were saying talking about now but it was hard for me to tell myself that I shouldn't go down that path that I shouldn't feel the shame it was really difficult for me to convince myself that it was okay what's done is done and you shouldn't have the shame I really think there's right now there's kind of this culture of everyone's getting used to having I shouldn't say everyone but departments are getting used to having analysts And kind of having civilians there to support you or even make recommendations in itself is is kind of tricky in this position as people are still trying to get used to it and kind of accept that. So 
to create more of a riff than what there already was, I think was a big thing for me of, I don't want to turn this little anthill into a mountain. And so I think that's also where a lot of it came from of, I I don't want to make a big stink about this. I just want it to go away. Yeah. And there's definitely something to be said about that. Because as you mentioned, some of the relationships there were strained, even though you would be fully in your right to speak up and to bring attention to this, that relationship, that group, it can get further strained by doing that. And so you have to weigh it and you have to say, what's the best course of action for me is, Mm -hmm. is, is what you have to do at the end of the day. All right, Allison, well, let's take a break. When we come back from the break, a couple more questions, and then we're going to take some calls. Should you hear in the office, we're going to lighten up the conversation as we finish up this interview. You're listening to Alice Talk with Jason Elder. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Angela Backer-Hines, and I just want to remind you to give yourself a break. As analysts, we strive to have all the officers in our department utilize our skills, and we typically want to be everything to everyone and do everything we can each day. But work is much more manageable and less stressful if you embrace the fact that it's okay to take some time for yourself, and maybe even to say no once in a while. In analysis and in life, you have to give yourself a break or you risk burning out, and then you're no good to anyone. So just remember, it's okay to give yourself a break. Hi, this is Mitri Lewis, and I want to say, make friends with your other analysts. Don't just stay in your own little world, in your own little bubble, but hey, meet the other analysts who work in your jurisdiction, who work in your county, who work in the jurisdictions around you. Have lunch. Go play cards together. Do something together to get to know each other. It will benefit you in the long run. Welcome back, Allison. One thing I wanted to ask you before we take some calls is you mentioned your master's degree. In this show, we've gone through, I've interviewed people that don't have degrees at all. Some folks have just a certificate. Some people have bachelor's. Some people have master's. And I'm curious what you think the master's degree did for you in terms of your analytical career. I think the major contribution of having a master's degree is a lot of the theories that work behind the scenes and what we're doing. So the broken windows theory, for example, it's better understanding what could be going on in the community that would be driving your crime or what types of interventions might decrease the crime. I think with having a background in psychology, I would have never known these theories or looking at statistics from a criminal justice angle. And then also I did a really neat GIS class that I would have never had either with my bachelor's degree. So there were just, mm-hmm. there were just some good core classes where I can see the difference and kind of how I'm thinking about things through an analytical lens in comparison to someone who doesn't have that background. Yeah. Cause now that you mentioned that, and I'm thinking back to my time, cause I got a bachelor's in criminal justice and we did have a a class on criminology, but it was very, very light. Just maybe get the definition of each theory. It wasn't until graduate school there at the University of Cincinnati. That, yes, yes. <laughs> so that I had a, a criminology class to where you really dived in and it is a whole other level of learning. It, for it, some it, of puts, stuff. it puts a lot of analytic. I mean, that's kind of really the where my analytical thinking came into of how can you solve or how can we kind of think our way out of some of these situations that we're in? Yeah, so, no, and that's where I met Dr. John Eck. But it is different and it is a way of thinking and a way of writing. And yes. it's, I think most people, when they think of that, master's degree or post undergrad degree that they think it's a bunch of testing and mathematical equations and doing study analysis and and it it certainly can be that but the concepts in this profession you really get to do a deep dive on some of these these core concepts 
we joke here a lot. We have two interns that go to UC and I joke with them all the time that I absolutely would love to be in their shoes because I love learning and I love school. And so I remember just absolutely loving learning all of these theories and being able to do that deep dive like you were talking about. Yeah. Huh. See, yeah, I go back I, in a heartbeat. <laughs> oh, see, no, I, I once I was <laughs> once I was done with at UC, I I did not want to read another textbook for the rest of my life, <laughs> and I still don't. Like I I enjoyed class time to where you would get together and you would talk about a topic. I really enjoyed that the discussion aspect of it, but to read another textbook, I it would I think might kill me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good deal, Allison. So let's take some calls now. This segment shit you here in the office. This is some crazy office stories or stories that are bizarre that folks either witness personally or they heard them talk about in the office. And so, Allison, do you have a shit you here in the office story? Oh, I do. I have plenty. I think my favorite one, though, is I had a homicide detective tell me once that what they would have for dinner that night depended on what the crime scene looked like. So (laughs) if there was Taco Bell in the back of the vehicle, they would go to Taco Bell or some type of thing that would give them an inclination on what they were going to have for dinner based on a crime scene. Yeah. See, and I think with somebody (laughs) that is a layperson, that's never worked in a police department, that might be a little shocking to them. Yes, but it's 100% it's, a coping mechanism. Yeah, but just it, dealing with it. Yeah, it's a good, but sometimes as you're dealing with some of this stuff, and it's not like he's probably doing it on purpose. It, it would probably, it might have, a lot of it might have been psychological that yes. he didn't realize it until after a couple of times, like, I just realized that I ate Taco Bell after seeing a Taco Bell rapper at a crime scene that day. So certainly he's doing it consciously now, but it, in the beginning, it might not have been even conscious. Yep, didn't probably start that way. You are probably very correct. All right, so we have some callers on the line. And first up is Amanda. Amanda, what's some shit you heard in the office? One of the most interesting things I heard in the office was a friendly argument between two detectives about who was more outdoorsy than the other. And the one suggested that reading outdoorsy magazines is not enough to make you outdoorsy. I I really believe stuff like that happens in any office where you get just two people arguing and the argument just turns really dumb really quickly. So this one kind of cracks me up because I feel like it's something of like a very like playful argument, but I also feel like it's something people younger would kind of bicker about. Yeah, probably. And it, I mean, it's, <laughs> very friendly. Yeah, it's very friendly. And yeah, that is some trash talking there. That if that's the only thing that he's going by is the books that he read. And because obviously when you're talking about outdoors, you better have spent time outdoors, right? Correct. Yes. Next on the line is Jason. Jason, what's some shit you heard in the office? We actually had an officer that believes that the earth is flat. And I thought the pandemic must have been a horrible time for him, especially with six foot distancing. When I told him that, I really think it pushed him over the edge. (laughs) That's a good one, too. I'm not sure I would call him out on it. I feel like that would start an absolute debate. Oh, man. It is. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting because. The level of organization that it would take for us as a society to convince the world that it's round and not flat is astronomical. Think Think about what it would take if the world was really flat and everything that we've ever seen data wise makes it round. That would be quite a web that we weaved, you know, when we're telling that lie. Yes. Absolutely. I don't, I, that, that one does seem a little, someone's going to probably hit, criticize me on this one, but that one seems a little bit like not as harmful. At the end of the day, if you believe the earth is flat, what's the harm in that, right? I guess right. if you believe in Santa Claus or you believe in the Easter Bunny or whatever it is, I mean, at the end of the day, what does that do? It's not like some of these other uh, beliefs that people have or it's impacted our society. Like this one doesn't seem like it's really that big of impact. I agree. That's a good point of view. All right. Next on the line is Andrew. Andrew, what's some shit you heard in the office? There's some 
shit I heard in the office was that and it was probably my first day on on the job going out and actually meeting with some of the officers that there was an individual who rode around town on a bicycle chainsaw and he would go around and just do whatever you know all over the place and at first I thought they were messing with me but then I, I went out on a ride along and there was a report and we ended up pulling up on this individual and yeah there he is sitting there with a chainsaw on his bicycle. So he didn't really go into too much detail about it. I assume that he's actually doing work with the chainsaw like maybe he's actually going around and helping people either cut down limbs or whatever it is because obviously if he's using that chainsaw for intimidation or a weapon <laughs> that's gonna be a little bit different story <laughs> i would have hoped they wouldn't allow him going around the neighborhood with a chainsaw chasing people on a bike <laughs> but you know, yeah, I think we had one in Cincinnati where the person stole a flat screen television and had it on a bike. So I just ha- huge... like, that's some serious balance. Yeah, you get all kinds of folks. But as I said, if he's actually has a service that he's using that chainsaw for and he's, you know, helping people out and doing it for good, then hey, with whether he's on a. Uh, moped or motorcycle or whatever it is i guess there's really no harm in that so all right next on the line is sabrina sabrina what's some shit you heard in the office meatballs in in your pants is not a phrase you hear often or at all but i had a detective talk to a victim about his ex-girlfriend spreading rumors about him pooping in his pants or as he phrased it having meatballs in his pants how she was able to keep a straight face and continue interview is unknown to the rest of our unit (laughs) i had never I've never heard that expression. Have you? No. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how often it would have to happen to actually give it a name. <laughs> <laughs> Meatballs in your pants. And it's just so funny. Like, why wouldn't you just say poop in your pants? <laughs> like, that's absolutely like, because there's not like another reason why you would have a meatball in your pants, right? There would, it was like you're hiding you something. You would hope not. meatballs in your pants so yeah i can i man some of the interrogation interviews or some of the interviews that you get from people i i'm sure are are pretty wild like how people describe certain stuff and to this guy that was the way you described poop in your pants and he was obviously (laughs) fired up because what i what do you say an ex-girlfriend or something was spreading lies about him according to him and he's like no i'm not the type of person that puts meatballs in my pants <laughs> all right last one is jv jv what's some shit you heard in the office man I'll, I'll tell you one time i was i was in the office and i heard these two detectives talking about trying to identify some guy and what it all boiled down to was two guys fought over a porta potty there was a long line and this one guy just decided to cut in front of the other one and and they just started duking it out because they, they couldn't hold it in any longer. <laughs> and my God, it was quite honestly the S so. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Two poop calls in one day. Man, because oh, that is just something else. But, I mean, this goes to this goes back to my theory that it's just a matter of how much time you're spending on your Saturday. Right. Like, because would you think about it when you hear about these parents that are fighting these referees or umpire at these soccer games or whatever they are on a Saturday? Well, if you're giving up your entire Saturday to watch your kids play soccer and all the effort and time that you are putting in, that your kid is putting in, and then to have a call that you think is bad, not that I'm justifying their behavior, but it's understandable why they're losing their mind because they just gave up their entire Saturday to do this. And now this just happened and that's why they lose their mind. So in this case, I could see, Hey, I got to really go to the bathroom. I've been standing in line for who knows how long. And this person just cut in line. I can't, I'm losing my mind. I can't, I can't do this anymore. They fight and both end up crapping themselves. I think this really gives a whole different meaning to shit you hear in the office, though. (laughs) That is. So (laughs) both of them had to tell them, I'm going to put a meatball in your pants. 
Yeah, and then yes, and then fighting over a porta potty. Yeah. So what when he first started to say that it was a porta potty, I thought the one guy got in and then the other guy was gonna push it over. Like that's what I oh, thought was that gonna would be happen. So bad. Yeah, like they I think they did that on Jackass. Like and then if you do it on door side down, like if you tip the porta potty oh. down so it's door side down, like I don't know how you're getting out of there. I think you kicked the top out at that point. I yeah, you're kicking something. That's yeah, weird. that's that's awful. You know, what's funny is that it, it opens up, right? And so you got the two guys duking it out and rolling around on the ground. And the third guy probably just passes him and goes into the porta potty. <laughs> goes right in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, that is shit you hear in the office. So if you have a story, a wild story that you've heard or witnessed in the office and want to share it with the show, please contact us at leapodcasts at gmail.com. All right, Allison, glad we were able to lighten up the the conversation. Kudos to you for sharing your story. I can't imagine it was easy story to tell, but I do appreciate your perspective and all that you went through. And it sounds like you are on the process of healing. And I just want to commend you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. All right. So our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And this is where you can promote any idea that you wish. Allison, what are your words to the world? I think some positivity for some analysts of be persistent and have perseverance. The work we do is a fairly new concept, and I think having those two characteristics and traits will definitely pay off in the end. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Allison. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.